Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. This is Victoria Wood. I'm an occupational therapist, and you're listening to Pediatric Maladaptive Behavioral Challenges. In today's course, we're going to review maladaptive behavioral patterns, including the etiology of maladaptive behavior outbursts, implications of sensory processing disorder on behavior, and long-term outcomes of poor behavior. Then we'll work on the treatment for maladaptive behavior patterns, including medical-based treatment, behavioral treatment, educational-based treatment, and sensory-based treatment. Then we'll do a case study and the prevention of maladaptive behaviors. The etiology of maladaptive behavior. Behavior, both positive and negative, begins in infancy. Babies cry to get their needs met. They have no other mechanism for alerting their caregivers that they're uncomfortable in some way. Infants quickly learn their crying gets attention. This can be a great survival mechanism for alerting others to hunger and pain. Very quickly, this alerting mechanism can morph into maladaptive behavior patterns. A baby whose needs are met quickly when they cry may start crying for non-essential reasons. Perhaps they're bored, lonely, itchy, overstimulated, nervous, or frustrated. The crying, screaming, kicking, pouting, and hitting are behavioral reactions to an emotion or stimuli. The behaviors are noticed first, then comes the untangling to determine the cause. There are generally four reasons for behavior. The first is tangible. A person wants something. They're going to act in a positive or negative manner to get it. A child may smile and say please to get a cookie or cry and stomp their feet. Either way, they may end up with the cookie. The second reason is escape. A person wants to avoid something. Again, they're going to behave in a positive or negative manner to avoid this. A child might ask nicely and give reasons to stay home from school or cry and whine for the same reason. Depending on the parenting style, this child might win either way. Automatic. The person engages in these behaviors because they're internally pleasing or they feel good. They may also happen because they stop something that feels bad. Sometimes we even do these things without realizing or thinking about it. Humming to a song, rocking back and forth, cracking your knuckles, or stimming. The fourth reason for a behavior is attention. The person engages in this behavior because it gets them attention, good or bad. Attention can involve vocal communication, eye contact, facial expression, body posture, and physical interaction. You might say, great job, or don't do that. Talk about the behavior in front of the person. Give them hugs or high fives. A person seeking attention will often look at the other person for a reaction. So the implications of sensory processing disorder on behavior complicates things to a certain degree. In addition to the four reasons for maladaptive behavior that we talked about above, 
Adding in sensory processing difficulties ramps behavior to a whole new level. When a child is out of sync for any reason, the first sign we notice is some sort of behavior. It might be negative, such as screaming, kicking, crying, pinching, fleeing, or hitting, or something different like twirling, stimming, staring off into space, an inability to listen, or hiding from someone. There are hundreds of behaviors seen in people experiencing difficulty with their sensory system. People learn when they're in their just right zone, and this is important. A person who's upset for any reason is not able to take in meaningful information while they're having an outburst. So someone who has many outbursts a day finds very little time in their just right zone for learning. Besides the obvious distress that difficult or negative behavior brings to caregivers and the child involved, delayed in development and learning needs to be the prime reason for correcting and solving these behavioral issues. There are three signs that your child's having a sensory meltdown, and this is different than a tantrum. A tantrum is usually triggered by one of those four uh, reasons for behavior, the tangible, the attention, etc. So three signs your child's having a sensory meltdown. Number one, you cannot communicate with them during this meltdown. They've entered fight or flight mode, making them essentially unreachable. Number two, they're not trying to get their way or trying to get something like a toy or a treat. A tantrum is not about a child getting their way. A sensory meltdown is different from a tantrum. A sensory meltdown is triggered by a sensation. If you can connect your child's behavior to one or more sensations, you might have a meltdown on your hand. So let's talk about some of the sensory behaviors that we might see associated with sensory processing difficulties. This first section, we're going to talk about sensory seeking behavior. Sensory seeking means the body's not getting enough of a certain input or their bucket is being emptied faster than it's being filled. There's often a behavioral reaction to get what the body needs. Imagine the effort of trying to drink a large milkshake through a coffee stirrer. You eventually get a drink, but it takes a lot of time and effort. Your body is like a computer. People who seek sensory input have smaller wires than they need. The wires may be going in the wrong direction, or the wires are too long, taking way too much time to get processed. So people that have vestibular seeking difficulties and are seeking behavioral input their behaviors might look like spinning themselves around, being in constant motion, jumping on furniture, climbing, taking excessive risks to get input. If they have proprioceptive seeking behaviors, they might be accident prone or fall on purpose. They might be bullies with rough play or hug too hard. They might hit during play or be aggressive because they don't know how much force to use when they're playing. They could be destructive using too much force when handling objects, uncoordinated, bumping and crashing, stand too close to other people or hanging on them. Tactile seeking behaviors tend to look like constantly touching objects or people to the point that it's bothersome. They always seem to be dirty. They don't mind being messy or notice when their hands or face are messy and they tend to fidget with objects. Now auditory seeking behavior looks like not responding when their name is called, or they're slower to respond to questions or information being said to them. 
They constantly make noise to add to their auditory input and cannot work unless there's background noise, such as the TV or radio. In a lot of cases, children with auditory processing difficulties, their soundtrack has to be louder than yours. Seeking visual input can look like turning anything into a moving object because they like spinning, flashing, and moving objects. They're drawn to electronics to the point of addiction or maladaptive responses without it. They like to be surrounded by visual input and they stare. When they stare, oftentimes it looks like they're not being attentive or they're ignoring you. Um, and they like visual chaos, like a disorganized workspace or room setting. Olfactory seeking behaviors look like constantly smelling objects or people. They tend to surround themselves with odors and smells such as perfumes, candles, lotions, often to the point that it bothers other people. And they don't notice smells around them, including body odor, burning food, or foul smells. Taste and gustatory seeking behavior looks like constantly putting food in their mouth. They eat or chew on non-food items, mulch, clothing, pencils, erasers, paper. There's a condition called pica, which is eating non-food items such as rocks, sticks, feces, paper, etc. And it can be linked with a nutrition deficiency. Not all people who eat non-food items have pica. They can be overweight due to cra craving food. They don't eat just because they're hungry. And they often make poor choices in order to get food, such as taking food from others, sneaking, hoarding, or rationing food. Now, the opposite of sensory seeking is sensory avoiding. People who feel like they're getting too much input tend to avoid it. Too much input is like trying to take a sip from a fire hose. Too much, too fast. In the computer analogy, the wires are too big or they're very short, so the system quickly gets overloaded. Vestibular avoiding behaviors might look like being afraid of swings and other playground equipment. They refuse to participate in PE or stand to the side at recess. They might be fearful of heights such as elevators, escalators, roller coasters, to the point that they run away. They might make poor choices in terms of avoiding vestibular input. They display maladaptive behavior patterns and are sedentary. They're sometimes classified as lazy. Proprioceptive avoiding behaviors, these children can be clumsy, awkward, accident prone. They might have difficulty learning new skills, might write too lightly, grip objects too loose, or drop things, and they tend not to like wrestling or deep hugs. Tactile avoiding behaviors might look like not wanting to be dirty and avoid messing around with messy play, avoids touching food to the point that they won't eat. They want to wash all the time and get anxious about being messy. Oftentimes, they might even refuse to participate if they deem that something is going to be messy. They might demonstrate flight behaviors or irritated by tags and type of clothing. They change clothes 10 times a day or maybe they want to be naked. They don't like grooming such as hair washing, nail clipping, haircuts, and they react negatively to touch by pulling away, hitting or crying. Now visual avoiding behaviors, they might cover their eyes at bright lights or turn the lights off constantly. They squint at bright or breezy environments or they refuse to go outside. 
They might avoid eye contact, visual stimuli too much. They don't tolerate sudden changes in light and are distracted by visual stimulation. A mess has stressed them out. Auditory avoiding behaviors. Children or adults might cover their ears to protect from sound. They do not like sound or sudden noises sound as alarms or horns. They'll over-respond to input or display negative behaviors, refuse to participate in loud events or things they might think might be loud. They might have difficulty focusing or getting their work done in a noisy environment. They stare off into space, seem to refuse to work, and become easily distracted. Some people who don't like noises might make their own noises to counteract what they're hearing, which is more comfort to them than hearing some other disorganized noise. Olfactory avoiding behaviors, they cover their nose, usually in an obvious manner, and they gag or they try to leave the area. They might elope or refuse to participate. They might have a negative response, such as crying or yelling or inappropriate remarks. They avoid odors around them, so they don't like cooking with spices. They don't like a lot of lotions and perfumes. And they don't like to participate in activities that might trigger this response. Now, in the taste and gustatory avoidant behaviors, they might gag or vomit just at the sight of food or being in a room with food. They refuse to touch food or participate in mealtimes. They run away from the table or refuse to sit. You don't find that these children put food or non-food items in their mouth. Um, they're a picky eater with a very limited diet. And they avoid certain tastes and have very rigid eating habits, such as food not touching or only eating certain colors of food. They can be underweight or undernourished during, due to avoiding food. Now, there's a condition of picky eater versus problem feeder, which is another um, big condition that has to do with um, taste avoidant behavior. There's a webinar um, on Summit available uh, if you want more information on that. In addition to these categories of sensitivities or seeking behaviors, there's modulation, um, which is a general arousal level. So your arousal level can be high or low or fluctuating. So if your body's not in its just right zone, you're not going to be doing any learning. You're just surviving. So the children that are not in their just right zone might be out of control or they might be sluggish, restless, poor sleepers, emotionally reacted, distracted, seekers or avoiders. People with modulation disorders often display avoiding or seeking behaviors in several categories. A person could be sluggish and slow one minute and bouncing off the walls next. As adults, we automatically regulate our arousal system during the day, often without conscious recognition of our behavior. We might use things like drinking a cup of coffee, listening to music, exercising, taking a break from our work, or doing some hobby that makes us feel a little bit calm. Children generally do not self-regulate well. Their system is seeking or avoiding, thus creating behavioral changes it's not prepared to deal with. Sensory integration treatment provides children with the mechanisms for appropriate self-regulation. Here we're going to um, talk about our case study with our little friend Tanner. 
there's a YouTube um, connection on the handout that you can watch if you want to see the actual behaviors. But basically, mom brought Tanner um, to the mall and he was having a meltdown at the mall. So she brought him to the car to cool down. He was screaming. Mom tried counting to three and then she threatened to send him to bed when he got home. Nothing really worked. And um, she's probably left wondering why her um, typical methods aren't working. Let's look at the four functions of behavior and see if it fits into the category. Attention. Uh, it didn't look like in the video that Tanner was seeking attention at the mall. He seemed to, seemed to want to get away from it um, and wasn't seeking mom's attention in having this meltdown. Escape. Uh, the behavior probably started because of the shopping trip, but it didn't seem like he acted out in order to leave the mall. It was just a function of where he was. Tangible. Is there something Tanner wants? Not really. He wasn't complaining that there was something he wanted at the mall that he didn't get. He probably wants some peace and quiet or some soothing reassurance. Automatic, um, that's when the person engages in these behaviors because they're internally pleasing or they feel good. Um, I doubt that crying and screaming while being trapped in the car with your mother shouting at you feels good. Um, it might be a habitual way of acting and reacting to overload, um, but what about the three things that we know about sensory meltdowns versus a tantrum? So you cannot communicate with them during this meltdown. They've entered fight or flight mode. One mom was counting to three or threatening to send him to bed. He couldn't even process that information well. Um, they're not trying to get something like a toy or a treat. He did, wasn't saying, I just wanted a cookie or I want this. It was just screaming um, and triggered by a sensation. So if you can connect the child's behavior to one or more sensations, this might be a meltdown. So what could have triggered this behavior? The mall is a very busy, unpredictable place. There's a lot going on. There's sounds, there's sights, there's smells. And it can be that Tanner got overwhelmed and um, wasn't able to self-regulate and nobody noticed it until it was too late. So there are probably other things that mom could do differently to help with a better reaction, such as noticing before he hits shutdown mode at the mall and taking a break then, or bringing certain things to help him, like headphones or a weighted blanket or fidget toys. And then when he is having this meltdown, just sit quietly or maybe put on some classical music really low or get some things like a fidget or something that's very calming in the car. And just knowing that talking to him or counting is probably not working at this point. And maybe it had some other times, but not today. So she needs to try a different method. What are the long-term implications of maladaptive behavior? So we might be wondering, so what happens if a child just doesn't behave or is constantly kicking and hitting? So early behaviors, problems, they don't impede children's school achievements. So a two, three, four-year-old. Um, but persistent problems, such as after four and five, once they're in school more consistently, they may impede their educational and occupational outcomes. We've seen this many times in school where the behavior is so intrusive 
that they're not learning. It actually impacts the learning of themselves and those around them. So that's when we know that there is a long-term implication to their behavior and we need to get um, working on making this better. What are the treatments for maladaptive behavior? So the first might be a medical-based treatment. And this includes differential diagnosis, medication, and psychotherapy. So it's important to seek out the root cause of the behavior. Is the behavior sensory? Is it attention seeking? Is it getting their needs met? Is there some sort of pain involved? What's going on um, that is causing this behavior? Is it one of those four functions of behavior? Therapy and counseling can help to get to the root of certain behavioral issues, but not all. Medications are an option for behaviors caused by anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, in order to begin the treatment process. And it doesn't mean that medication has to be the end all for the treatment. It just means it might be a start. Behavioral treatment is used when a child displays a tantrum due to the four functions of behavior. So we might use shaping. And that's working to shape and change behavior by successive approximations or getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer to the behavior we're looking for. ABA is a type of treatment um, that means applied behavioral analysis. And that uses operant conditioning to shape and modify problematic behaviors. It uses behavior modification, rewards, and punishment. There's also exposure therapy and different disciplinary methods to work on changing behaviors. Now, in order to formulate an accurate diagnosis, behavioral assessments typically require parent interviews to obtain a developmental history. They use diagnostic questionnaires, teacher interviews, and or school observations, and a clinical session with the child. With this knowledge, children and parents can start to better understand the underlying causes of challenging behavior and formulate treatment plans to modify both the behavior itself and its impact on daily life. The Vineland is a typical tool used to gather information. However, clinical observation and data collection will be the most important methods to achieving information and results. Another treatment for maladaptive behavior would be cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is not enough to treat complex medical conditions, and it doesn't always account for the underlying conditions, and it may not address the whole picture. Cognitive behavioral therapy relies on behavioral techniques, but the difference is that CBT adds a cognitive element, focusing on the problematic thoughts behind the behaviors. So you're not just trying to squash the behaviors, you are looking at the antecedents or what the triggers are. Now, educational-based treatment is often used during the school system and might be added to a child's individual education plan. Those might be a behavioral assessment, so they start by data collection of antecedents and consequences. You might have a period of three weeks, three months, three days of collecting data to look for patterns. Once patterns are established, they create what's called a functional behavior plan. And the functional behavior plan is a set that is outlined to talk about if A happens, we will do B. And if C happens, we will do D to give everybody 
a script to follow so that everybody's on the same page, working in the same direction with a student. It also, um, when we're talking about educational-based treatment, could mean environmental implications and adjustments. Maybe it's something as simple as moving the child to a different seat or adding weighted lap pads or headphones or barriers and dividers in between students or having the teachers talk in a quieter manner. Um, there's preventative methods. If you know somebody's triggered by, say, the fire drill and you happen to know there's going to be a fire drill, then putting the headphones on ahead of time will help or noticing when there's a substitute teacher there might be a trigger. Thinking about things ahead of time can often help instead of waiting till there's already behavior and then trying to fix it. So the educational-based treatment focuses on the behavior and how we're going to fix the behavior, not necessarily all the sensory components that go into it. And that might be the piece that gets lost. So one of the treatments for um, maladaptive behavior might be a disciplinary method. And there's different types of disciplinary methods we use for neurotypical children. And of course, there's positives and negatives to all the following disciplinary methods. So I wouldn't say that one is a go-to for everybody or one is the worst thing you could try. Um, you have to really weigh what's happening and the situation. Timeout is a very typical strategy that's used, um, and it works for children who's having a tantrum because of the four functions of behavior. It gives them a quick break from what they're doing and a chance to think about their behavior and modify their choices. While the child does not like timeout, he knows the routine and will usually correct the offending behavior if you're consistent, and consistency is going to be the key here. Spanking is a controversial method of discipline. Um, some people are for it, some are against it. But either way, for a typical child, it might be a quick, effective correction to behavior. Um, but if this is your preferred method of discipline, it won't work on a child with sensory processing disorder because of the fight or flight and because of their reactions to input and the triggers to input. They just don't put all the pieces together to understand what's happening. Uh, sometimes you'll find teachers or caregivers yelling. They'll raise their voice so that they're screaming at a child. This definitely gets their attention and can stop their behavior, but do you want to get your children to listen by fear or shame, or do you want them to understand what's happening so that they can make better choices? Taking away privilege or preferred items, this can work for typical children because they can understand their behavior and choices. They can process what they did and they can understand the outcome. So if you're consistent with something like taking away privileges, it might be something that works for typical children. Now there's a lot of reasons why those types of disciplinary methods that we use for typical children don't work with sensory based behaviors because of the triggers and because that the children aren't reachable in the middle of a meltdown and that the behavior is a function of something other than just wanting something. So some of the things we can do to regulate sensory behavior might be adaptive equipment and that would include things like 
weighted items, compression, noise canceling, fidgets, um, anything that you add to a person would be considered adaptive equipment. Sensory-based therapy, helping a child to regulate their arousal level so they can deal with the highs and lows, and actually helping their sensory system so it can adjust to the input. So it input doesn't seem like it's coming in so fast or that it takes forever to get to um, what the threshold they need. Another common thing you might hear is a sensory diet. And that has nothing to do with food. It's more about a regimen that you do that keeps everybody on a consistent treatment plan to get self-regulation. There's also other self-regulation strategies that might include deep breathing, uh, visualization, mindfulness, having picture schedules, etc. to help them get regulated. Now, a sensory break is something we hear about, and this just removes the child from this situation that's causing the behavior issues. It's not a timeout. It's actually removing them from the environment. And sometimes we have to do this just for safety, for the safety of them or the safety of the people around them. So sometimes it's just for safety. And it may mean that the next time you notice the triggers quicker or you start to learn from this break to see what you need to do differently. A sensory break that I like is a sensory break with a therapeutic activity. So while you're taking this sensory break, maybe do an appropriate sensory activity to reorganize the sensory system. It's finding the right calming and organizing activity for a break. It might be sitting in a tent, lying on a beanbag, swinging, or running laps. A lot of schools now have sensory rooms, and when the child needs a sensory break, they just send them to the sensory room. This helps in some ways, but it needs to be more of an organized sensory break. Otherwise, the child may still have an increased arousal level and go back to class or might have done the wrong activity in their sensory break and not feel any better. Sensory deprivation. The word deprivation has a negative connotation like solitary confinement. For a child's experiencing sensory overload, sometimes depriving the system of input is enough to calm and recenter the system. Sometimes a quiet, dark room without toys, star lights on the ceilings, on the wall, or just someplace quiet with white noise might help them reset their sensory system so they can start to take in information better. Now what about a working punishment or a correction? There's a famous movie called Holes in which the children were in a type of work camp and they just had to dig holes and you know, go from one place to another, fill in holes and dig holes. Now, while this was a punishment, it actually was really very genius because the heavy work they were doing helped them to organize their system to make better choices. So you could do things like carrying books from one end of the hallway to another, carrying heavy objects, pushing a large ball down the hallway, dragging a wagon with books in it, doing exercises, crawling around the floor, cleaning the floor with a rag, washing desktops, something that's going to help the system get reorganized. A couple other things we could do is speak softly in short commands. So often when we lower our voices, it draws more attention from the child. So sometimes whispering they suddenly attend to what you say.
Also, speaking in short commands makes it easier to process these instructions. Remember, one of the functions of the meltdown is that they can't really hear you when they're in the middle of this meltdown. So if you're trying to talk and negotiate like the mother in the case study, the child can't even process that information. So if she had just said, going home or uh, buckle up or let's breathe, maybe just a couple of words would help him to give him the strategies that that he needed to help um, get better. And then again, you see people yelling and raising their voices. And yes, this does get a child's attention, but often can frighten them and turn them into shutdown. So it's not really helping them learn to make better choices. What about deep pressure? So giving a child deep pressure or a bear hug calms the central nervous system. If you can get close enough for a hug without being kicked, and this is very important that you're doing this hug and watching out for your own safety. So this isn't a loving embrace during the middle of a meltdown. A lot of times you might come behind a child and hold them with their arms to their sides to try to give them that deep squeeze. And if that causes more panic on in them, then it's some, not an activity that you want to repeat. You might try and find something different to work for them because some children do find it claustrophobic. Another technique might be to give the child a choice to do it themselves or have help when they resist completing a task. So do you want me to help you wash your hands or do you want to do them yourselves? Either way, it's going to get done. And oftentimes when you offer to help, the child decides, oh, I can do it by myself or maybe I do need help. Either way, it gets done. Maybe just trying to understand why the child reacts the way they do. Sometimes understanding can be the biggest hurdle that we cross over in changing behaviors by thinking, okay, well, he's upset and she's hitting because she doesn't have the language to tell us she's frustrated. Or he's hitting because he doesn't have the skills to do this activity I'm asking him to do. So be patient with the process. You might find it takes a year to untangle some of these behaviors and change some of the reactions that we're seeing. Understand that what works one day might not work the next. And this can be really frustrating for caregivers that you suddenly feel like you have one plan and it's working really well and then it just kind of blows up the next day. So for people, what you want to try and do is offer them a bigger toolbox. So a lot of strategies. If A works, excellent. If A doesn't work, then go to B, then to C, and all the way down to Z if that's needed to help break some of these behaviors. Um, be realistic about the expectations for a child. So if you take them to the movies at 10 o'clock at night and you're expecting great behavior, uh, you might be setting yourself and your child up for failure. I've seen people at midnight with children in the casinos in Las Vegas and the parents are so upset because the child is crying. Well, they set that child up for failure by just setting an expectation that might not have been realistic for a three-year-old. Take time for breaks. Sometimes caregivers need a break also, and it's important for caregivers to take time for self-care so they don't have burnout or feel like they can't handle things in the way they would like to. Anticipating behaviors ahead of time and those road bumps that might come in the way 
is a better way to deal with behaviors if at all possible. So problem solving what you're going to do when you go to the birthday party or when is a good time to take a break or what kind of behaviors you might see if you go to the circus. What can you do when you go to the supermarket to prevent some of these sensory triggers? Um, being consistent and structured in any of these strategies is very important. Uh, people thrive on structure. They don't necessarily want to be disciplined, but they strive on structure and rules and consistency. So try to be consistent. If you say something, then do it. Um, and then pick your battles wisely. So if you just want your child dressed and it doesn't matter what color shoes they're having to wear, then just let them choose. Or if you just want them to eat and it doesn't matter which cereal, then let them pick this cereal. Let them have control over the things that don't really matter and just kind of pick those battles. Decide when it's worth battling. It's worth battling to take a bath or to wear your seatbelt or to wear a helmet when you're riding a bike. Those things you'll have to battle because those are for safety. But it might not always be worth the battle to whether you wear a headband or whether you have gray socks today. Just make those choices wisely and decide which ones you're going to fight with. So when you're talking about school-based treatment, there's different adaptations that we can do. And again, adaptations are something that we add to the child or their curriculum. And you can do this for young children or older children or even adults. So some of these things are, if you put Velcro strips under their desk, it provides tactile input. And this is something that's not noticed by other people. So if the child is very sensitive to not wanting to be different, this is something that you can do. They make calm strips that you can put on top of the desk um, or under the desk if you want to that actually provide a tactile input. But this is a very simple strategy. Compression shirts can be worn under their clothes to give that kind of deep hug. Under Armour makes a shirt and it has to say compression. Also, there's a website called Fun and Function that sells compression shirts. And they can be worn all day underneath the clothing. Now, preferential seating, maybe in front of the classroom or near a quiet child or somewhere right near the teacher where the teacher can keep an eye on the student all the time. Maybe adaptations to the workload. If the child can show you that they understand addition in 10 problems versus 30, then decrease that workload so that they can do enough to demonstrate that they've understood the concept, but not so much that it's causing a meltdown. Maybe another accommodation could be typing long reports instead of handwriting. Handwriting can be something that is a significant trigger because it's so difficult. So some, turning something into a typing assignment might be just the accommodation they need. Maybe offer breaks to get out of the classroom. Things that are not so obvious, like, oh, you need a break to go to the sensor room, but maybe something such as running an errand or taking a bathroom break or saying, can you bring this to the front office or can you bring this book to Mrs. Jones's room? That way, the child's getting their break without it being obvious to the rest of the class that that's what they need. Um, when they're walking in line or in the hallway, you can do preferential placement. Maybe they need to be the front of the line or the caboose or behind 
Susie Sue so that they can get the best benefit out of that kind of activity. At certain times of the day, you could dim the lights in the classroom because it's almost like no lights make noise and dimming them helps to kind of decrease some of that sensory input. Some children really benefit from a timer or a watch to keep them on track of their work. They don't necessarily need somebody saying, okay, one more minute, three more minutes, but having a timer or a watch, they can kind of keep an eye on their work. Another thing you can do as a caregiver is to stand near the child during their verbal directions or the lessons for maximum attention and focus. If you stand near them, you can just tap them on the shoulder if they're not looking or kind of lean down a little bit lower in their direction, and you can really be on top of whether they're paying attention or having um, some sort of sensory difficulty at that time. Chewing gum is another one of those controversial things um, in school systems because of gum on the carpet, but I do feel like chewing gum is really great for those oral seekers, that it's just something that can keep their system organized. You can have rules about chewing gum that you shouldn't be able to see it or hear it, and it's a tiny piece of gum. Anything that you choose to do as an adaptation needs to be taught that it's a tool, not a toy. So chewing gum, for instance, would be a tool to help you focus. And if you start using it as a toy by pulling it out of your mouth or showing your friends, then they're not using it for its intended purpose. So then you lose that ability to have gum until you can make better choices. There's another technique about different types of learners. Some learners are very visual and they need to see everything. Others are auditory learners. They need to listen to it. They can't really look at something to get what's happening. They have to listen. Others are what we call kinesthetic learners. They learn by doing. They actually have to try it and practice and participate in order to get a handle on what's going on. So just kind of watch to see what kind of learners and students you have in your environment and maybe modify the way you give your instruction to meet the needs of those learners. There's fidget toys of all different types that you can give to a student to help them stay focused, especially during circle time or group time when they're really supposed to be listening and not fidgeting. They need to be discreet, something that the child can put underneath their desk. I've had students often that will have a pencil case in their desk and they have several different types of fidgets and they know when to pull them out and which ones to pull out. But again, they need to be discreet and the child needs to understand that these are tools, not toys. Now, if you have a child um, in more of a self-contained classroom, you might be able to have more noticeable strategies. This isn't to say that you can't do noticeable strategies in a typical classroom. It's just there's a lot of distractions that these bring to the rest of the class or maybe to the student you're working with. And a student, once they get to you know third or fourth grade, they know that um, they're different and some people like that and others do not. So there's move and sit cushions, um, including using a, um, a little tiny um, bean bag to sit on or a beach ball with a puff of air. You can do theratubing around the legs of a chair or um, a bouncy band. And there's a company now that makes these bouncy bands. This week I saw um, the, the bouncy band company makes these 
cups that go on the bottom of the legs of the chairs, and it turns the whole chair into a wobble seat, which is pretty ingenious. You can use noise suppression or canceling headphones. The child can still hear the teacher, so they're not tuning you out. It's just some of the sounds like breathing and coughing and crunching are reduced. You could use weighted or compression vests, a compression or weighted belt, or ankle weights. There's a lot of different options out there now for weighted clothing. There's a lot of alternative seats like sitting on a ball chair or a wobble seat or a tea stool or um, sitting in a bean bag or sitting on a desk on the floor. There's a lot of different options that might be available uh, to help your students stay focused. Now, what about standing in place of sitting in a chair? Again, you want to make sure that the focus in your class is on work completion. So if student A does their work really well standing instead of sitting, that needs to be the focus that they're getting their work done. So you'd rather spend them spend time with them doing their work than battling with them for a whole hour about sitting in their chair. Keep the focus where it belongs. If the focus is everybody sitting and sitting still, then that has to be the goal. You can take sensory breaks in a classroom. Everybody can put their head on the desk. Everybody can get a little bit of Play-Doh to play with. You can put on some quiet music or maybe take, people take a brain break and they listen to a dance song on the radio or on the TV screen. Some classrooms could have a quiet corner or a tent for breaks. My daughter's kindergarten had a little reading loft in the corner of the kindergarten classroom that they could climb up into the loft and just be away from other students when they wanted to do some quiet reading. You can use dividers between the desks, and this really came in handy during COVID time because there was quiet um, areas and dividers behind between the desks, and the desks were separated quite a bit that gave students a little bit more free space. Um, cubicles for working in. Just like you do in an adult office, you can have little cubicles for children to work in. You can turn a refrigerator box into a little desk, put the desk inside the refrigerator box. You can get a big barrel and have the child sit in the barrel while they're doing their work, or a little tent. So you can get creative to create pods in your classroom to help them get their work done. Maybe limiting the paperwork. I notice a lot of schools now are not sending a ton of homework home. They feel that the work that the child does during the school day is sufficient enough that sending pages and pages home aren't necessary. Maybe they send home an activity like reading before bed or creating a picture, but nothing as rote as doing worksheet after worksheet. Another strategy you could try would be to limit the sensory distractions in the classroom. In the classroom, maybe you don't have as many bright lights or noises or even the visual stimuli of having items on the walls, on the floors, on the desk, just kind of scaling back a little bit and cutting out some of that sensory noise, we call it. Limiting some of the smells in the classroom by not eating in the classroom or um, providing some sort of neutral air freshener that kind of just clears the air a little bit in the classroom. What is the effectiveness of all this treatment that we're doing for behavioral interventions? 
Behavioral therapy has successfully been used to treat a large number of conditions. It's considered to be extremely effective. Overall, the research has found that approximately 67% of the people who try psychotherapy experience some type of positive improvement. When dealing with behaviors, though, it's difficult to get definitive data. There's, of course, exceptions to this. It's much easier, although not fail-proof, to measure a child ceasing crying before, because it's been fed or their pain has been addressed versus their mood improving due to exercise, comfort, sensory stimulation, reduction in stress, or being given a treat. How can you know with 100% certainty that it was really the treat that caused a change in mood versus some extra attention, a change in environment, a soothing voice, rocking, or some other variable that you weren't even sure you were providing. How many times have you said, oh, I'm having a great day today, and you try to attribute it back to something, but it just seems to be something you can't put your hand on, that all the stars were aligned, or there might be something that uh, you can't measure the behavior. This often can be very frustrating to clinicians because we're looking for data, and we're looking to collect effective treatment methods, and a lot of behavioral treatment has to do with trial and error, especially once you're adding a sensory component to the behaviors. There's a lot of trial and error and a lot of variables that going, go into it. Overall, an ounce of prevention is cheaper than a pound of cure. So if one of the teachers says that not to let the monster get out of the cage so that the children would have a monster inside them and they need that self-regulation piece is keeping the monster at bay and they need to learn that kind of regulation and learn the language to say what's happening so that they don't let their monster out of their cage. So just to review, when you are looking for behaviors to determine if it's a behavior or if it's a sensory-based outburst, the behaviors are going to be, there's four reasons for a typical behavior. It'll be tangible. So they might want something. So they're reacting in a positive or negative manner. They want to get a cookie or they want to get out of their high chair. So they might have a nice reaction. I'm going to say, please, or it might be negative. I'm going to stomp my feet or I'm going to scream. And they might get what they want either way because screaming is quite effective in getting your way. The second one would be escape. So the person wants to avoid something. They're going to behave in positive or negative manner to avoid this. They might ask nicely and give a reason why they want to stay home or they don't want to go to grandma's house or they whine and cry and kick their feet for the same reason. And if you're not consistent as a caregiver, they might win from this escape plan. They might talk you into not going to grandma's house. And if it's behavior and not sensory based, then you need to be consistent in the way you manage these behaviors. Some behaviors then are automatic. They're internally pleasing or they feel good. Or sometimes they happen because they stop something that feels bad. So sometimes you'll see behaviors that are automatic, like picking or hair pulling. Some of it has a sensory trigger. Other times it just feels good. So sometimes they do it 
without even thinking about it. And it's just a matter of bringing some to their attention without drawing too much attention to it. So humming to a song, rocking back and forth, cracking your knuckles, stimming, chewing your nails. Some of those are automatic behaviors and habits that we create that we don't even realize we're doing. It takes three days to start a habit, but three months to undo it. That is a lot of time to undo something that happens so quickly. The fourth reason is attention. So the person engages in this behavior because it gets them attention, whether it's good or bad. The attention can involve vocal communication, eye contact, facial expressions, body posture, and physical interaction. You might say, great job, or don't do that. You might talk about the behavior in front of another person, or you might give them hugs or high fives. The person seeking attention will often look for that behavior or that reaction from somebody. So they're going to act in a certain way to get attention from someone. If this is the case, oftentimes ignoring their behavior works because that's a function of what they're looking for. In sensory, when they're seeking input, such as banging their head, it's not necessarily attention-seeking, so you can't ignore this behavior because they're actually going to hurt themselves. And now the three signs that your child's having a meltdown. We're calling a meltdown a sensory meltdown when the body's starting to go into shutdown versus a tantrum, which is typically one of those four behavioral functions. So when they're having that meltdown, remember that you can't really communicate with them during the meltdown. It means that you can communicate, you can try, but they're not going to be hearing you or processing very well. Even if you communicate by handing them a cookie, they might grab the cookie and then continue to have the meltdown because they're not processing it. They're entering the fight or flight mode and that comes from the brain stem, the hippocampus. And so it really makes them kind of unreachable. So you're getting yourself worked up, which may even get them worked up more uh, because you're going head to head with this child. They're not trying to get something typically, um, like a toy or a treat. Um, if they want something, then that's more of the function of the behavior. Um, it's not really about them not getting their way. That's more of a tantrum when they don't get their way. A sensory meltdown, of course, is different than a tantrum. And it's triggered by a sensation. If you can connect the behavior to a sensation, you might have a meltdown on your hand. So you might say, okay, so we were at the mall and it was really loud. And then we went to the food court, which smelled very different than I expected. And we tried on a lot of clothes, which was uncomfortable and bothersome. So those might be triggers that lead to that sensory behavior. Many times when we're talking about behavioral therapy and behavioral treatment, all we look at is the behavior and we don't try to untangle what causes it. I believe that if we look at the cause and we untangle the cause, then the behavior diminishes on its own. So the child who's rocking and banging their head because they're seeking input, if we give them the input that their body's looking for, often the rocking will cease on its own. You don't have to deal with the rocking by stopping the child. A child who is putting things in their mouth because they're seeking oral input or they're anxious, 
Um, if you deal with that input by giving them something purposeful to put in their mouth or you deal with their anxiety, many times then the behavior will diminish on its own. Think about that when you're working with um, any kind of behaviors. What's happening to cause the behavior and what can I do the next time to change their reaction or change the environment? It gets kind of tricky because we would like students to live in a bubble where nothing triggers them, no other students, no sounds, no clothing. And that would be very challenging because school is not a bubble. And even if you keep your children home, they're not in a bubble to where nothing is ever triggering them. Even in a quiet home, there's smells, there's sounds, there's lights, there's feelings, there's things we need to do such as eating or bathing that might trigger them. So it's better to work on helping them manage this input by changing their sensory receptors. And we do that through input, through giving them enough input, but not too much. By doing that sensory diet and teaching them sensory regulation techniques, to help process that behavior. Now again, talk therapy and applied behavior analysis and cognitive behavioral therapy has its place and it can work for a lot of people uh, if the behaviors are caused um, by anxiety or by something that triggered them. But if there is a sensory component, you're going to have to work on that as well as doing talk therapy. It's not one size fits all for any of these treatment methods. So moving forward, when you're working with students or adults or children with any kind of behavioral difficulties, look at those four functions and decide why we're having the behavior, what you can do about it. Really be a detective to untangle the behavior and determine what's the best treatment method. And now remember that you might have 10 different treatment methods and you might have to do five different combinations of three different things to get to the right combination of something that works. And it's frustrating and overwhelming, but imagine you're that child in that tiny body and you don't have the language to say that something's too loud or too smelly or that James came too close to and breathed on you and you don't have the language to describe that. Even people that have language don't necessarily have the complex language to say that they're overstimulated or that something was okay, but now it's bothersome or that they wore this shirt four times, but now this fifth time is bothering them because their arousal level. That's a very high dynamic of conversation and that concept of language to be able to describe those. Giving children and other people the language to express themselves and express their sensory concerns is a great way to help them bridge that gap to be able to say, well, I don't like fruit roll-ups because they're sticky. And when I get sticky, then it bothers me and I can't do my work. Or I didn't want to go to the circus because it was too loud and the elephant scared me. Talking about things can help you do adaptations and change the behaviors or change the environment. And it goes a long way to correcting some of these behaviors just by talking through things or observing 
being that detective and seeing how you can unravel and unfold what's going on with with children because as we notice the incidence of autism is on the rise the incidence of ADHD and learning disabilities behavioral reactions all of these maladaptive and difficulties are on the rise for whatever reason and so we need to be proactive in trying to help and deal with them because teachers are getting frustrated children are getting frustrated caregivers are getting upset and everything seems to be spiraling out of control. So hopefully you can take what you learned today in this class and look at the people that you work with a new set of eyes and have a little bit of understanding and try to uncover what's happening with them because it can be frustrating for everybody. And just a few minutes of trying to think it through and untangling what's happening can create this great environment and relationship with the people that you work with, your children and your other coworkers, as well as improving the learning of those around you. Remember that the behaviors might be short-term now, but they could be having long-term lasting effects on the education and the social relationships for that person's entire grown-up um, adult lifetime based on some things that are starting when they're really young. Thank you for listening and tuning into this video today. I hope that uh, it was helpful and that you were able to get some information from it. Um, you can find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is called The Sensory Queen and um, you can get the rest of the information from checking out the summit brochure that came along with this podcast. Have a great day and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.